0: Thank you.
1: Melbourne's diverse poetry
0: scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey.
1: Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance.
0: Good morning, I'm Tina Janukas. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Today on the program we are travelling back in time to late Republican Rome, that unsettled period before the grand imperial age of Rome. Linda Vesta, poet and academic, is the author of the verse novel, Nothing Sacred, which explores the underbelly of late Republican Rome through the tumultuous relationships of persons familiar from history. Linda's Nothing Sacred is multi-voiced, sensory, and above all replete with characters alive with ambition, Desire and Deviousness. Nothing Sacred, published by Australian Scholarly Publishing, won the Wesley Michelle Wright Prize. Linda, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Tina. Linda, what drew you to the social and political landscape of late Republican Rome for your verse novel, Nothing Sacred? I'm generally interested
1: in antiquity, but specifically this period is really fascinating. Uh, perhaps most people are familiar with uh, Imperium and that's been represented you know so so much uh, in our common era. But the late Republican Roman period is a period pre-Christianity when the practice of divination involved uh, fertility rites and the practice of haruspication, which is the the reading of omens uh, through uh, inspection of the entrails of birds and animals, uh, usually sacrificed for that purpose. But it's also a period that is volatile, that has a lot of political intrigue. It's the same period of uh, Caesar and Pompey and Roman expansion, but even... Having all that, all those events happening, I wanted a slightly different depiction in mind. So I focused it more on the relationship between the siblings, Claudia and Claudius. I found a footnote in a book of Catullin poems that mentioned that Claudia Metelli had been mapped as being Catullus's literary construct, Lesbia. It was really just a fascination to seek out her from the archives and to build some sort
0: of imaginative image of her from that. So can you tell us who these people are? Catullus, of course, is the poet, and who might Claudia be? Well,
1: Claudia Matelli, um was a, a noblewoman in late Republican Rome, born into the Claudian family, one of, I think, just probably a handful of powerful ruling families in Rome at that time,
0: Nothing sacred begins like all good narratives in the middle of the action or in media res, as we might say, with a funeral procession. And as I read that opening poem, Awakening, I almost thought or felt or feared that the coffin would slip out of people's hands and onto the ground. Can you tell us about the poem and the way you begin the narrative? Yes, the book begins in prologue uh, with this funeral taking place.
1: And it's an opportunity, as all verse novels do, to do some story world building and to introduce the characters to the reader. And for nothing sacred, this is quite important because it's the death of their mother that brings them closer, the two siblings, Claudia and her brother Claudius.
0: Let's uh, hear that first poem where I think uh, these elements are very strong.
1: Okay, Awakening. Through labyrinthine streets, our lame procession hobbles to mother's tomb on the Via Appia, litter lurching, our slaves skidding on the dung-smeared cobbles. So many dead, so many tombs, they nearly reach the city walls. Fathers hired mourners to wail, won't allow his children to beat themselves with grief. But when the stranger drops to her knees, and ululates in hoots and howls, when she tugs her hair and complicated webs tangle her hands, when she pounds her forehead on the stones, her battered bones offer no catharsis, bring no relief. Claudius reads Mother's eulogy. Exemplary matrona, modest, faithful, chaste, unsoiled by the common crowd, This inscription on a nearby tomb. Passerby, I met my end. Enjoy your life. No, you too must die. To be of the cloudy pulcri, a legacy of bones and ash.
0: How does the shadow of imperial Rome influence your narrative, knowing what was to come in a way that the major players in your verse novel, Nothing Sacred Do Not, And why this title? I almost have the feeling that knowledge of the coming end for these characters' wider world inevitably calls the sacred into question in a peculiar way for the world they know does not survive. Yes, um, Tina, you've picked up on my use of nothing sacred as being
1: ironic. As a writer, I was aware that every one of my characters was going to, to die in the period that I had set the verse novel in. But the actual phrase comes from Juvenal and from a slightly later period in his satires, where he offers an anecdote about the type of man whom you invite to dinner and who proceeds to seduce your wife, your cook, your household. For him, nothing is sacred nor safe from his groin. So, you know, it's the way that you can utilise fragments that you borrow from the archive and then you know, imaginatively embed them in your work. Do you think that the shadow of death hangs over nothing sacred? Yes, there's quite a bit of death in the verse novel. All the main characters die one by one. Crassus, uh, Caesar, uh, Pompey, uh, Claudius, uh, Catullus even. Although I have to sort of invent the reason for his death, but since lead poisoning was very common... It was used in most the manufacture of most goods in that day. So I give him um, the sorts of physical and mental deteriorating conditions linked to uh, lead poisoning. But Claudia is essentially the
0: only one left standing at 42 BCE. I wonder if you could read Claudius' returns, that I think touches upon the questions of power and so forth that are in Nothing Sacred. Yes,
1: politics and, and power, it's it's a, a central strand throughout the verse novel. And uh, in this poem, Claudius joins uh, Lucullus's campaign to rid the Mediterranean of pirates. Uh, so uh, this is Claudius Returns. I see what's kept you preoccupied. It's been seven years. Now my brother rushes in with the urgency of rebellion, winds and tides. His mere presence stirs up the birds. They teem shrill, sweeping parabolas under the hemp net. Claudius grins when he sees the stage. A skyna? For poems and plays. I open my arms wide as if to recite a line of verse. A monthly symposium? That's genius, Claudius suddenly smirks. By invitation only? I bet Cicero's irked. And what's this? He walks toward the saltwater pond. Piscis. Claudius swirls a fleshy hand across the water's rim, swaying the fronds of the aquatic plants until the mullet's lips pucker up and skim the surface, lacing it with blisters of small bubbles. Claudius intercepts my gaze trained on him. Suddenly, he shakes the water from his hand. Pompey replaced Lucullus's command, but that's not why I'm home. No. The word on the streets is, he stirred up Lucullus's rank. Mutiny has a cost. They lost some territory to Mithridates, who fled to Colchis. But I'm not about to mention this. You heard about Catiline? Claudius sees. This is Rome. Cicero won't get away with putting citizens to death, but first I need to know everything. What do you say you and I pay to break Cicero's seal? Intercept his letters. I can't believe the undertow I feel. An exhilarating thrill. Now, Tina, the citizen that Cicero had put to death was Lentulus for his part in... A plot devised by a Catiline, known as the Catiline Conspiracy. But it was shocking because there wasn't a death penalty. For all uh, the power and and intrigue, they they sent people into exile. So uh, this is one way that even though these characters have, you know, written in first person, they've only got their own perspective, they're not omniscient. But by being privy to Cicero's letters they gained some privileged information about the machinations going on behind the scene and can then set about to undermine those steps. And Claudius, of course, takes the extraordinary step of getting himself adopted into a lower class plebeian family so that he can take leadership of it and he forms a gang. So this is where things really, you know, heat up. (laughs) And he's known as a firebrand, you know, he's dressed up in women's clothing to get access to the women-only festival, the Bonadir festival, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Caesar, who then seeks to uh, divorce his wife,
0: so as a result. When um, I uh, read Nothing Sacred, one of its um, elements is its uh, sensuality its um, undertones of sexuality. And I thought very much of the Roman poet Catullus that is a character in Nothing Sacred. Have you been influenced by Catullus in the writing of these poems? Um, Yes,
1: uh, good call. Catullus's poem number two is addressed to Lesbia, a.k.a. Claudia, and his poem number two reveals his desire. If only Lesbia would let him play with her pet sparrow. The sparrow, of course, considered uh, sacred to Aphrodite and associated with pleasure and procreation. Thus, Catullus's poems draw upon uh, this layer of, of sexual metaphor. And I chose to do likewise in the verse novel. So, in the poem Valentine, I have Claudia. Preempt, if you will, uh, Catullus's poem number two. The poem moves between uh, the etymologies of English, Latin, and Greek, uh, so there's a certain slippage between the words. There's double entendres and euphemistically, it's it's loaded. So uh, this is Valentine, and they did celebrate a sort of uh, month dedicated to Venus but it was uh, celebrated in April. It's Aprilus, Venus's month, a reason to give lovers gifts. Not that I need. A crystal ball, ivory dice to gaze into or to roll. I can take all I want from Catullus's pouch. He'll vouch for my sparrow's safe return. He'll recall my pet, my plaything, in my lap or at my breast And wish himself wings And desire like bird Fern, forest, nest Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's Subscriber Drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today.
0: Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. I'm Tina Janukas. You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I'm speaking with Linda Vesta about her verse novel, Nothing Sacred published by Australian Scholarly Publishing and set in late Republican Rome. Linda, your academic work revolves around uh, the verse novel, including uh, sets of interviews with verse novelists in the books, Inside the Verse Novel, Writers on Writing and the Verse Novel, Australia and New Zealand, both of which are wonderful resources for verse novelists, what draws you to the verse novel both creatively and academically? I
1: was drawn to the verse novel initially um, hearing Dorothy Porter read hers aloud from Akenaten 1992 uh, through the others their dramatic intensity and that immediacy that they offer was brought to life in uh, Dorothy's delivery so I became fascinated then it gained a formal dimension when I decided to research verse novels uh, for my PhD, and then I decided that I'd like to uh, bring verse novelists to the table to hear what they have to say. They're experts, after all, in having written one or more verse novels. I wanted to hear how they thought about the verse novel genre and how they went about their craft, because what's fascinating to me is the interplay between the poetic and the narrative elements. It's
0: different, it's unique in every single verse novel. Research, of course, is crucial when writing historical fiction. But the question is, how accurate does a historical narrative have to be? How did you set about researching late Republican Rome and how much of that research dictated the terms of the story? In other words, how much poetic licence is there in nothing sacred? Well, historical
1: fiction is a creative construction of the past, but I sought to re-enliven the aspects of history into fiction in an imaginative way. Actually, how to go about that, uh, I suppose, throws up several choices, because if I were to take an historicist approach, it would risk putting a stranglehold on the work and not giving me enough poetic licence. The other choice is to be presentist, and yet that didn't suit me either. To impose uh, a present-day lens on the events of late Republican Rome just wouldn't be appropriate. So really what I tried to do uh, was to build up the verse novel in layers. I was researching the whole time, probably about five years, and uh, writing Mostly there was very little information to go by. For example, uh, one poem, Gargantuan, is about the killing of 20 elephants in uh, the Munera, in the animal games. But really, while that is an actuality um, and it's written in Cicero's letters to Atticus, it's just a line or two and there's no elaboration. So I just imagined the whole scene myself well let's hear that poem okay gargantuan as promised atticus my report on the exceptional munera held four days before the nones of september pompey's conquest of africa brought back strange beasts you know the ones large ears that flap and fan like palm leaves the sound these beasts make is hollow and resonates like the horns that signal, let the games begin. I can tell you, though, twenty of them all at once bring forth an incredible din. The spearmen attacked twenty such beasts, lined up and released their spears in lots. The beasts stamped their protest in the sand, full thickness of foot until the dust rose up. but. Gargantuan as they are, they could not be lashed into a rage of bravery, only one separated from the herd and charged repeatedly. Each of the others gathered the young with one long, bristled, probing trunk. They tucked the calves between their legs. Though the rattle of spears rained down on their backs, they remained collective armour. This behaviour from beasts. Needless to say, they succumbed to the will of men and knelt heavy, tiresome deaths. The calves were left standing, surrounded by the humongous corpses. Then as volley upon volley began to silence them, their trumpeting dissolved in bleats, and like newborns to teats, they fell to their meagre ends, with little pageantry. Yet, having said all this Atticus, it's the citizenry who puzzle me. Not only did they cover their ears, they began to weep. In fact, they wept profusely. It was on for young and old, Matronas and viroes. Sight unseen, hard to believe. Dead beasts, they've seen them many times before, and many times before this Entertainment, as you know, afforded them much pleasure. Yet the death of these beasts moved them deeply, more than the mastery of the spearmen. The crowd began to thin, and as they made to leave, they hurled abuse, not cheers, at Pompey, their general. Yes, you read right, no need to rub your eyes i cicero mislead you not they turned on quiff and smirk i leave you to consider this final thought fourteen statues flank the theater each conquered nation is represented here but where is the thrill of bloodlust where is all the talk of war so I suppose Cicero there is reading the reaction of the public to the killing of the elephants as emblematic of a perceptible shift in public opinion
0: at Rome. And you imagine that in the poem so wonderfully.
1: Thank you. Um, The volatility of Rome is part and parcel of it. With the use of language, I suppose, even though it was an actuality, I had to also think of it from today's time and how readers would be revulsed by this. In a sense I compensated by trying to make the language as seductive and I suppose beautiful as I could. I aestheticised the scene which was hard to do.
0: As I read through Nothing Sacred and of course I've read it several times, I was struck again on this latest rereading I did on just how independent each poem is from the others. Though you're telling a story about late Republican Rome, you're doing so through the intense variety of the characters' voices. In a way, the reader or the listener is constructing the narrative as they go along. How important is it for you that each poem can stand as a poem in its own right, even as strands of narrative connect one poem to the other? Uh, Very important. Um, The verse novel, like a novel,
1: has plots um, and has character development and uh, several strands that might be interwoven as they are here. The challenge is having so many first-person, present-tense speaking characters is how to differentiate them on the page. Uh, so, with Cicero being an orator, I gave him uh, a stilted voice and I'd use uh, a, a dash to um, indicate this. With Catullus, I, I tried to make his voice sort of witty and clipped to show that he was from a different class. He was from outside the elite, he was of the equestrian class. So, there, there are subtle ways that I'd try to shape the language to convey character. I'd love to uh, hear the poem, Right Hand Man. Yes, this is um, Claudius talking to his henchman, Cloelius. I'm in the Senian baths, of all places, Cloelius, when talk about a lack of discretion. Some would-be assassin comes up to me, psst, Claudius, and wants weapons quite specific, a parasonium in a scabbard, and clubs, no questions asked, and all by nightfall. I shift along the rows of wooden benches in case somebody's listening. There's the sound of lapping water, acrid smoke from the furnaces, the heated floor, the wisps of steam, that musky mildew smell. But no conspirators, as far as I can tell. So with a callous laugh i nod to the phallus shaped fascinum round his neck what need of you of weapons only then i note his gaunt face scraggly beard narrow hips and pigeon chest on second thoughts come back today with payment exchange takes place outside the city gates no names mentioned cloelius but his ass is woollier than a flaccati. I'd recognise that couloth cool anywhere again. The weapons, that's where you'll come in. This is a job for my right-hand man.
0: Linda, the verse novel has had a profound resurgence in contemporary poetry right around the English-speaking world over the past few decades. As both an academic and a poet, or what do you attribute this resurgence of the verse novel to? That's certainly true. I mean, I
1: understand verse novels as having arisen in the 18th century in parallel to, but clearly in dialogue with uh, the rise of the novel. But also reaching back uh, historically to poetic narratives in antiquity. Epic poems, you mean? Epic poems, uh, and then medieval romances and Renaissance uh, romances and folk ballads. You know, there are uh, epistolary uh, verse novels uh, from 1784 that had several reprints. They were popular then. For me, this historical perspective of the changing role of verse novels in different periods is important but certainly, you're right, since the, the 80s, there has been a proliferation, particularly here in Australia and with YA and children's verse novel in um, the USA in particular, but also steady progress
0: in uh, the UK. And what do you attribute that to?
1: Well, uh, improvements in reception, greater awareness, certainly uh, finding a market within publishing, it's a very different situation in in the US. Their first novelists have agents and go on tours and present their work to schools and receive awards. So many of them are uh, bringing home all the um, main awards uh, that America can offer. So it's... It's huge, Um, and it's great to see that shift because it's uh, been an underrated genre. Linda, let's have a final poem, shall we? All right, um, I'll read Name Dropping. It's an exchange between Cthulhu and Claudia, where Cthulhu realises that uh, he can't just chat Claudia up, that he's uh, really not of the same class as she is. But anyway, he will see how he fares. The Claudian name's inscribed. On the bronze code. On the twelve tables on the arches. On Rome's first aqueduct. But of course, I say, as Claudia recites her credentials, sarcasm tinging my tone. She's pretentious, I'm irked. Yet I'm holding my breath. Each sweet grape she plucks from the bunch hovers before my lips. On the first happy way, remarkable. And on the August consul list. Let me guess, scores of times. So one of your forebears must have been a vestal virgin. One of your forebears was a vestal virgin. Suddenly my face drains. My credibility plummets to my knees. I see what the fool I've been. Her jewellery carries more weight, venustas doctrina, more bearing, more distinction than to dazzle my desire. Now, she eyes me warily, your accent, Catullus, it's from the north, means you come from beyond the Po, means your a provincial means. I'm so out of
0: her league. Marvellous. Thank you, Linda. Thanks, Tina. It's been a pleasure. I'm Tina Janukas, and you've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I've been talking with Linda Vesta about her verse novel, Nothing Sacred, published by Australian Scholarly Publishing. Spoken Word broadcasts every Thursday at 9am on 855am or you can listen live on 3cr.org.au. You can also download the podcast Linda Vester's Nothing Sacred is available online from Australian Scholarly Publishing. Thank you for listening.